Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. We're a member of the Virginia Audio Collective and the Family Podcast Network, and we're on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 820 AM across Central Virginia, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that's PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And today we're thrilled to be joined by Nelson Smith, a decorated military veteran who currently serves as Commissioner of the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services. Commissioner Smith joins us for a conversation about ongoing efforts at the agency to strengthen services for Virginians who experience mental and behavioral health challenges, which we'll get to in just a moment. But first, welcome to the program, Commissioner Smith. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's our pleasure, and we appreciate you being with us, sir. I did just mention a moment ago that you're a decorated veteran of the U.S. Armed Forces, a description that doesn't do justice to your record. For our listeners, Commissioner Smith served in elite U.S. Army units as a combat dive team leader and as a recipient of the Purple Heart Medal for being wounded during service and four Bronze Stars, recognizing his meritorious and valorous service, among other honors. So first, let me just say thank you for your service. And... I do imagine that there are aspects of your military career that you can't disclose, but out of curiosity, can you give us a high-level sense of what special force combat divers do? Because those are specialists who are a pretty rare breed in an already elite community coming from the Green Beret ranks. Yeah, sure. Thank you, uh, by the way. While I was proud to have served amongst many heroes, um, that time was something I'll never forget. Blood, sweat, and tears went into all the work that we've done. Special forces soldiers are... I guess fundamentally experts. We are experts in guerrilla warfare, unconventional warfare, and we work by, with, and through foreign forces. And <clears throat> you've probably seen a lot or heard a lot about some of the battles in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, much of that was done with Iraqi forces. We would live in villages in Afghanistan to help those communities arm and equip themselves. Um, and then Likewise, in Iraq. And then when we weren't in combat, we would be in the Middle East. My team, our area of operations was the Middle East. So you name it, uh, we worked with a lot of those, the Ministry of Interior or their forces to train and equip them to fend off anything that could happen in those nations. It was a partnership, if you will. So I did that for um, 20 years, retired in 2016. Many combat deployments, almost five years in a combat zone. So I always joke when people ask me, how are you doing today? I say, well, I'm alive, but uh, honestly, it's I'm thankful to be here and I live for all the, the men that I serve with at are. Well, certainly, as I said, thank you for your service and, and I appreciate you sharing that background. In preparing for this interview, I was reading up on the Army Combat Diver competition that occurs out of Fort Bragg, which is relatively new, and it's a really fascinating subject. As context for the next question, I should tell you that a recent guest on the podcast is a physician at Henrico Doctors Hospital, Dr. Clifford Deal, who served in the 82nd Airborne Division. And one of the things we asked him is whether he has gone skydiving as a civilian because he obviously was involved in parachuting during his active duty service. So in that vein, Commissioner Smith, since you do have combat dive experience, do you do any uh, scuba diving these days for personal enjoyment or is that all behind you? No, I do. My wife and I actually enjoy. It's great. Once you finish the combat dive school, which is it's the same format as what most people have heard of as BUD, the basic underwater demolition for Navy SEALs. We're the Army version of that. Our PR is not quite as good as the SEALs. I always <laughs> joke. Love my SEAL brothers, though. But... I do. My wife and I, uh, I'll go out and we'll rent some tanks and, uh, and just the two of us will go. You know, we've 
like in the military, when you dive, they make it a little bit more difficult. It's always three in the morning, it's dark, and you can't see anything in front of you. Whereas recreational diving is very leisurely and relaxing. So I do enjoy it. That's good to hear. I've done some snorkeling, but never scuba diving, although I do fill up paintball air tanks at the local scuba shop here in the Richmond area. So I guess I have that uh, <laughs> that passing <laughs> connection. Um, <laughs> after completing your military service, which you just mentioned, Commissioner Smith, in 2016, you returned to graduate school and transitioned to a career in, in behavioral health care. I wonder what specifically attracted you to, to that field. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a strange path. I get asked that for obvious reasons. I always joke and say healthcare fell on me. You know, you never know what doors will open or close. And, you know, I felt I was led to it. And say in Nashville, when I retired, I lived in Nashville because Fort Campbell was just 40 minutes up the road. So my wife and I lived in Nashville. And as you know, we consider that like the healthcare capital because you have so many major healthcare companies are based there. And I had a friend of mine who got out of the Marine Corps and he went to Vanderbilt when he was getting his MBA, and he got into this healthcare CEO development program. And when I was talking with him, he mentioned that leadership is what is really used. He's like, I don't even use my MBA. He's like, I have a CFO. I know how to rebalance sheets. He's like, more importantly, it's, it's about bringing people together and empowering them to accomplish things as a group that they never would have thought. You know, just using those soft skills in the military that we've learned and applying those in a way that I don't want to say it's rare, but in the civilian world, I guess, you know, I kind of take it for granted. So he said, you'd be good at this. Send me a resume. And when I actually got into the behavioral health care facilities, I realized you have to have a passion for this. And I internalized it like I have any other mission. As you know, I'm willing to do whatever it takes for your team. And now my team is not only the people in the facilities or out there doing the job, but also the patients we serve, the humans that we serve. So it, it was an easy mission to get behind. And I would say I've internalized it just like I did when I was active duty. On the subject of, of leadership and the mission, you, as we mentioned, are the commissioner, which is the leader of the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, which is the state behavioral health agency. It oversees 12 facilities, including adult and juvenile psychiatric hospitals. You came to DBHDS after working in private sector health care, including as a leader at Chippenham Hospital's Tucker Pavilion Behavioral Health Treatment Facility for juvenile and adult patients. In that capacity, your responsibilities included efforts to improve care in inpatient and outpatient settings. In your public sector leadership role at DBHDS, what challenges would you say are unique to public sector healthcare, and how are you working to apply effective strategies, perhaps from the private sector or your military uh, work, to your current task? Sure, I've had some wonderful leaders in my life, and you know, people that I wanted to emulate to be like. And one of the leaders I'll never forget was a colonel that came around to our team room, and there was no agenda; just popped in. You know, on our Special Forces A-Team, we had these little rooms, we called them team rooms. And he would just sit down and ask how everyone's doing. There was no agenda. And then as time dragged on, you know, you get a new commander, you would see less and less of some of these people. But just him showing up always made me feel more valued, you know, that I wasn't just a number behind anything, that we were doing something and he was part of it. Mm -hmm. So I try to bring that forward into when I transition into healthcare and I keep that same mentality is that, you know, if someone feels valued, 
human capital is the most important thing for any organization. Any processes, performance improvement, data, your analysis, your spreadsheets, all those things, they mean nothing if the people in that company do not feel like they're part of something, that they're part of something bigger, like they, they are heard. So I've just simply done that. I've been trying to drive all over the state. And from what I understand, that's been long overdue. From all of our private providers, public, nonprofit, for-profit, it's everyone wants to be part of the solution. And so I think the difference is I get to see it from the state level. And while everyone wants to do the right thing, we need a unifying effort, someone to bring us all together. And so I see my job is building those relationships, strengthening the ones that we've had, and bringing everyone alongside us to do what we need to do to take care of every single Virginian, not just for profit, like I said, or whatever banner you fly. It's for all people who need help. And I'm absolutely, I love it. I love that and that I truly feel blessed that we have this opportunity to make a difference. So the, I guess the biggest difference is being part of something this big and making change. Well, on the subject of change, as you know better than most, Commissioner Smith, both the public and private sector healthcare systems were strained during the COVID pandemic, which only served to magnify many of the pre-existing healthcare workforce shortages at a time when the data tells us that even as a lot of healthcare service line utilization generally declined across the board, demand for behavioral health services grew. And so against that backdrop, Virginia is in the midst of behavioral health system redesign and and reform through initiatives like Project Bravo and Step Virginia to more effectively align inpatient and community-based services with patient needs in both the inpatient and outpatient settings. This is obviously a complex and multifaceted situation involving, as you just alluded to, many stakeholders, advocates, providers, patients, even the law enforcement community, among others, the CSBs. Looking ahead to the 2023 legislative session and beyond, what opportunities or initiatives do you see as having promised to address some of these these challenges? Well, we've recently rolled out, or we will be rolling out shortly, um, what we call our North Star Objective. It's our strategic plan that I would like to provide to the community as well, where we can all work within the framework to get these things done. Project Bravo, Step Virginia, all of those things are in place. They will go forward. And I I would say more importantly, what I'm going to focus a lot on is the agency itself. You know, the governor's initiatives to make Virginia the best state to live, work, and raise a family is a meaningful statement. It's a meaningful mission. And it has quantitative and qualitative actions that we'll be able to deliver on. Simply deregulation in itself. So over the years, I think inadvertently, we've added a lot of barriers to the community and made it you know, quite frankly, a little bit hard for our providers to, number one, open, you know, open an outpatient clinic through our licensing process, or, you know, we'll say the Department of Justice Settlement Agreement has created lots of work. The administrative burdens are so great that we, I hear it from all over the state, that it's hard for people to actually do that care, deliver that care effectively. And so, What we're doing is going through our internal processes and focusing on having providers move to Virginia and set up shop here to create capacity, having providers 
whether it's nursing or techs or social workers, when they graduate, we want them to stay in Virginia through our licensing process, through the Department of Health Professions that you know, we're working to see what we can do to bring things more in line with other states where we maintain quality and the integrity of social work but still allow people to get a license, say, easier, but it's definitely not quite as easy as some states. So there are a lot of initiatives that we're going to focus on, again, to remove barriers. As I told everyone in our organization, we're not the ones at DBHDS, we're not the ones that are sitting across from those families in the middle of the night in the emergency rooms on holidays and weekends. We're not the ones delivering care. So it's my mission, it's our mission to make sure that those providers have everything that they need timely so they can work efficiently to take care of those people. And that's it's really going to be the focus. Well, patient-centric care is is obviously a priority, and it's good to hear that you have a, a focus on that. And also, you referenced efforts on workforce, on recruitment and retention, keeping people here in Virginia after they've completed their training and their education. Uh, that's certainly something that we here at the association are very much engaged on as well. So uh, it's great to hear that, that you're also focused on that. And then you mentioned community-based services as well, which are critically important as are specialized services, because as you well know, Commissioner Smith, within the behavioral health patient population, there are many different indicated treatment approaches based on patient needs. For instance, as I, I'm sure you know, John Randolph Medical Center, which is an HCA facility and you used to work for HCA, in Hopewell has a psychiatric unit with focused treatment mental health options for folks who have been military veterans uh, and or active duty, things like PTSD, and they have staff in a unit that specifically focuses on that. Many private hospitals have programs that are focused on specific patient populations. Likewise, the state system has facilities that cater to the needs of juvenile patients and adult patients and even elderly infirmed individuals with behavioral health needs. So as Virginia continues on on the path towards reform and modernization, I wonder if you could share some thoughts on the importance of customized care in inpatient and outpatient community-based settings to meet the varied and unique behavioral health needs that patients have. I can tell you there are a lot of organizations doing amazing things. You know, you mentioned HCA, very quality, outcomes-driven, and I, I'm aware of their programs, especially the military. I would say that I want to be encouraging. We'd like to see more private-public partnerships. I feel like some of the private entities you mentioned, they they can move more quickly to create those needs that are unique to the to the culture of Virginia. And those services can be set up uh, in a way that are able to meet the needs of those communities. So I, I always use the example of how our regions are broken down like our community service board, they all are geographically, if you think about Virginia, the topographical map, it drives the culture. So Northern Virginia has different needs medically, socially, than Southwest Virginia, than Central and, and Tidewater. So the ability for those partnerships to develop and, or strengthen or emerge to meet the needs of each one of those communities is going to be vital going forward. Again, we, it rises, it ebbs, it flows, um, and I think those, again, the private partnerships, they're going to be a little bit faster to respond to those needs. I use the example, too, of like, let's just say substance abuse. In Southwest, there's probably a bigger need than in Northern Virginia. Well, there's a need all over the state, don't get me wrong. But, you know, military communities, you'll have a, a bigger military community in, a, say, Tidewater because of the bases there. Mm -hmm. John Randolph is near 
Port Lee. Mm-hmm. So all of those indicators would tell me, you know, there's no one answer to healthcare, uh, specifically behavioral healthcare, and we have to be flexible, all of us, public and private, to meet those needs. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Understood. I do want to yeah. give you an opportunity to talk about and perhaps promote two new public-facing tools on the state side that are in the behavioral health realm. One is the new behavioral health service utilization and expenditure dashboard uh, out of DMAS to track how Medicaid members use behavioral health services and profile service utilization trends and expenditures. The other is the new national suicide prevention lifeline 988, the three-digit number that gives people in crisis an immediate point of contact for support. Uh, and I know that's something that DB HDS has promoted recently. Did you want to talk at all about those tools and their value to the public and the patient community? Yeah, DMAS did just roll out a wonderful tool. It gives everyone sort of the sense of those needs that you were referring to and specifically where. It's an interactive tool. I've used it just briefly, so I don't want to talk too much about it because I'll get myself in trouble. <laughs> I'm technologically decent. But more, I guess I can really talk about 988. Virginia is, I would say, one of the leaders in the rollout of 988. Currently, we're answering over 90% of our calls on average in-state before it rolls over to the national line, which tells us that we have a pretty robust call center. The goal that SAMHSA has set is 90% by uh, 2023, so we're well ahead of that for many reasons. The General Assembly was gracious enough to fund 988 a couple of years ago and early adopters, so it allowed us to lean forward and get that network built. Also, the Marcus Alert Initiative, Mm -hmm. many, many hours and hours of work that went into developing that has really paid off. Again, I was at the National Association of Mental Health Program Directors last weekend, and we got a lot of accolades from the other state commissioners with these initiatives. Now, I've been asked, why haven't we marketed or pushed it harder? And, you know, I know that is an emergency. It, it is a crisis line, and we need it now. We need it yesterday. We need it years ago. But the reality is, it's a volume. We, we're not really, we don't want to overburden the system. We want to be able to successfully answer those calls and provide those follow-on supports to our citizens. So much like 911 was rolled out over a period of time, we're taking the same approach. And this, and we're following the model from SAMHSA as the best practice. So we're very, very excited about it. A lot of work has gone into this. And I think it's important to note the supports that go behind this. I mean, right now it's, I think, about 60% of people that call the line are able to be pointed in the right direction and avoid hospitalization. I mean, generally speaking. So what goes behind that too is the mobile crisis support. If they do need intervention, we can respond by deploying social workers quickly instead of our law enforcement who more often than not are overburdened by themselves sitting in the emergency rooms for days. So a lot of these systems are working hand in hand to give that patient or that human the care that they need when they need it, and also put our law enforcement back into their communities and out of the emergency room. It's going to take time, but I'm very, very confident with where we are and where we're headed. Well, it sounds like uh, great strides have already been made. You referenced that 90% response rate here in Virginia, which is ahead of that 2023 federal target date. So that's really good to hear. Uh, I want to thank you for being 
being with us today, Commissioner Spiff. Before we go, uh, we have a tradition here on the Patients Come First podcast to ask our guests a pair of personal questions to give our audience a bit of a sense of who they are beyond the work they do. To keep things interesting, we've developed a list of 10 mystery questions. And so what I'd like to do is invite you to choose two numbers between 1 and 10, and I'll give you the corresponding questions. 2 and 8. Okay, 2. If you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself company? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three entertainment survival kit picks? Goodness. (laughs) One of my favorite novelists is Nelson DeMille. He wrote many great books. One of my favorites is The Lion's Game. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like a suspense book with international terrorism um so very entertaining i would have that as a book record probably have to go with george Strait. greatest hits we'll just go with that one the king okay amarillo by morning up from san antonio everything that i got is just what i've got the third movie is the third oh gosh you know my wife and i just watched maverick top gun 2 and that that was the movie that i needed right now so i would (laughs) say that one captain pete maverick mitchell let me be perfectly blunt you are not my first choice you were here at the request of admiral kazansky aka iceman he seems to think that you have something left to offer the navy what that is i can't imagine our family saw that in the theater a few weeks ago. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a popular one these days. And then Very much. number eight is you selected, and that question is, tell me one memory from your life that whenever you think of it, it makes you smile. Gosh, I would say, I know this is, it, and I mean this though, is, is meeting my wife. We actually, we joke and say that we found love in a broken place. You know, like the song, we met in Afghanistan. And amongst all that madness, we found one another. So it's been life-changing and it's been a fun ride. So that's the best part. That does sound like a, a good memory, even out of a, in a, in a, perhaps a difficult location. Well, listen, again, Commissioner Smith, I do want to thank you for being with us today. And with that, that's going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you know when new episodes are available and leave us a five-star review there as well. And we want to once again thank our guest, Commissioner Nelson Smith with the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services for being with us today. So thank you, sir. Thank you very much. 